0: Yeah, 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 this Philly Celeb, man. You tuned in to Late Night Date Night. It's season two. Yeah. This season, we're going to bring you some thought-provoking topics. We're going to bring you deep conversations with intelligent women from all across the map. All types of different scenarios, opinions, all types of things. So tune in, listen, get your little notepad, write down some shit, because you might be going through the same shit that we talking about. Headed to the top, but I lost a few homies. Homies. Some to a bullet and some to being phony. Phony, phony. Niggas used to hate, now I'm saying niggas, Joe me. Joe Joe Shorty says she love me, baby girl, you don't know me. Stuck to the plan, now I'm getting bass. Band at the band at the band, stuck to the plan, now I'm getting bass. bands at the band at the band, stuck to the plan, now I'm getting bass. Band at the band at the band, stuck to the plan, now I'm getting bass. Band band at the band at the band and so the group you were telling me that uh psychedelics saved your relationship
1: yeah yeah i mean i don't know like it's i think they've saved my well i don't know if i would say saved my life so i would because that makes it sound like i was at some point suicidal but um they've definitely uh changed my life and definitely uh I, I definitely went through some dark periods of like, uh, not really knowing who I was and not really, um, feeling like I was following the path that I wanted for myself in my life. Um, and so I, I feel like in a lot of ways, like, you know, helped me, um, kind of be more clear about what I want and how I define happiness. Um, but yeah, I mean, so my husband and I both had pretty traumatic childhoods and, um, coming into our relationship with each other. We had both kind of gotten out of some pretty bad relationships as well. And so um, we really just both wanted to be better people for each other. And, uh, you know, we had kids, so I have three kids. And um, and after having our three kids, we got to this point that it was like, wow, (laughs) life is just not as enjoyable as we felt like it should be. And um, I think one of the interesting things uh, from growing up, in such a like a hard environment when I was a kid is that, like, I didn't know how to be a family and, like, being around my kids made me uncomfortable because I didn't know how to, um, interact with them and I think my husband kind of felt the same way and so, uh, one of the interesting things I think that psychedelics do for you is they give you this sense of, like, um, You get to make your own rules and you get to decide what happiness means to you and you don't have to try to be anything or anybody for anyone as long as you're being a good person and you know like following your purpose and being authentic. So um, I think all of those things kind of uh, helped us rediscover each other and um, kind of discover ourselves. Because I think one of the big things in a relationship is that, you know, you have to bring your authentic self into the relationship, and then, like, the biggest goal is to help the other person understand who you are and how to make you happy, and then do the same for them, Um, and that's really tough if you're struggling with questions about who you are and, you know, what it is going to take to make you happy, Um, so I think that, you know, with by using psychedelics and kind of answering some of those questions for myself and same for him it enabled us to be better people and to also articulate to each other this is what i want this is what i need and this is what's important to me
0: okay do you do you mind uh taking us back to just briefly if you want to uh talk about your childhood i don't know if that's like if that's something that you would like to talk about but if you don't mind
1: Um, So I am, I'm actually the only child of my parents. So growing up, um, it was me, and then my dad had a son from a previous marriage, and my mom had a daughter from a previous marriage, Um, and they were both 10 years older than me. So I was, I was a baby by a lot, Um, and I didn't really have any brothers or sisters that were my age, Um, and my brother and sister both. Uh, kind of resented me a little bit I think both because they constantly were asked to babysit me and um, I think they were abused significantly more than I was so like I I was more neglected than I was abused and I think um, you know because they had endured more um, kind of physical and emotional abuse than I had and it was always kind of clear in the house that I was my parents like do over baby so I was like And my dad had even alluded a couple times when I was a kid to, like, I was his chance to get it right. And so um, as much as he could, he definitely wasn't a great parent, but I think he tried a lot harder with me. And, you know, I think they were also older, right? So they were 10 years older when they had me and then when they had my brother and sister. And so they were more mature and, you know, I just think that um, things are a lot different. But, you know, my my parents fought, like, constantly and, you know, I can remember... Uh, a lot of nights when I was a kid, you know, laying in bed and not being able to sleep because they were just yelling at each other. And, um, you know, my dad was very physically and verbally and emotionally abusive. And my mom, um, it's, it's really interesting. Cause here's the other thing that's like, it brought me is a lot of perspective. Um, so up until a handful of years ago, I would have said, you know, my mom was kind of just a victim in the situation. And, um, you know, know, I think a combination of having more maturity, having my own kids, and also kind of re-examining how I looked at things. Um, My mom did a lot of things to um, kind of emotionally, uh, like, emasculate my dad and, like, emotionally, um, I'm, I'm not sure what the best way to put it. I don't want to say antagonize because... I mean, nobody should ever put their hands on somebody else, right? But, yes. um, like, my mom my mom would encourage myself and my siblings to, like, make fun of my dad. And so, like, she would pick on him. And it's strange because, you know, like, because he was more physically abusive and more verbally abusive, I always looked at it as just like she was a victim in a really shitty situation. But the more I look at it, the more I'm like, you know, she was a little bit abusive to him in her own ways and that, you know, she... Um so one of the things that uh, really sticks out to me is, like, she would encourage us to make chicken noises anytime he wore shorts because she always used to tell him that, like, he had chicken legs. And so, I mean, it seems like a stupid small thing, but I can only imagine, you know, trying to empathize with him what it's like to live in a house full of people that disrespect you and that, you know, kind of, like, pick, pick on you. And, um, yeah, so I think, you know, I just think it was a really toxic relationship between both of them. Um, and so they both worked full time and I was left home alone quite a bit. So once my brother and sister left the house, my sister left when I was like six, my brother left when I was seven. Um, so from like seven years, on, seven years old on, I would be home alone, you know, after school to pretty late at night, six or seven at night and then all summer. And, um, I was kind of just left to fend for myself. and. You know, so I, I ended up becoming pretty overweight uh, because I was feeding myself, so I wasn't eating fruits and vegetables and stuff like that. It was like Pop-Tarts and cereal and whatever was easy for a seven, eight, nine year old to cook. And so my parents used to ridicule me all the time about being fat, um, you know, and, and thinking back on it, I'm like, well, you're the one that was feeding me, you're like, you're the one buying me food and, you know, putting me groceries in the house, so maybe you shouldn't have bought me junk food, <laughs> you know, like, like, instead of, you know, ridiculing a 10-year-old for being fat, maybe don't buy Hostess cupcakes, you know, <laughs> and, and it's like, again, like having my own kids, I'm like, you know, I look at a lot of the stuff that I went through, and they're, they're ages now that I can remember being, and I'm like, I can't believe my parents made me feel bad for some of this stuff. Um, yeah, so I mean when I grew up like I was well over 300 pounds By the time I had left high school um, And I ended up losing 200 pounds So like, I'm like, I don't know, probably 160 right now um, yeah, and, That's good, that's good you know, Yeah, I mean it, it, it's, it's definitely uh, <laughs> But it's one of those things That it, it took a long time to understand Why I felt the way that I did And how, why I processed life the way that I did um, but, yeah, so it's just, like, uh, and the, the unfortunate thing is that both of my parents are kind of bullies. And so, you know, like, they would bully each other. They would bully us. They would, um, they were just really nasty people. Like, they never had a good thing to say about anybody. I don't remember them having friends. Like, it, it's crazy oh, to think no. about. Like, yeah, like, I've always, my whole life, I've had a hard time you know, up in, actually, uh, I have a really, really cool, awesome group of friends now, but up until, like, my mid to late 20s, I had a really, really hard time making friends, and I would usually end up being friends with assholes, like, all of my friends were jerks, and, you know, at some point in my mid-20s, I realized it's because I was a jerk, and, you know, it's like, um, you know, I realized, that, like, the whole way I learned how to relate to the world was kind of through my parents, and because they didn't have a lot of friends, and I had trouble making friends as a kid, like, I didn't have a lot of outside influences other than them to teach me how to be a better person, or, like, how to talk to people in a non-rooted and condescending way. Um, Yeah, so, uh, I definitely, by the time I became an adult, was, like, 18, 19, I was a pretty terrible person, and, like, I looked back at... Uh, the way I live my life and some of the things I did. And it's it's really like, <laughs> I think cringeworthy is an understatement.
0: Would you, um, excuse me, would you, would you mind saying like one or two things that you did or no?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So I used to, um, I grew up on the internet, right? So I got the internet when I was like 12 or 13, I think. Um, and so I used to love to bully people on the internet. And you know I'm fairly well spoken, and I'm pretty quick-witted, so I can I can be pretty nasty. Um, And so, you know, I was just like, that's what I did. I was just bullying people on the internet, and you know, like in chat rooms, or you know, like on. (laughs) I used to uh, I when I started riding a motorcycle, I was a member of this like motorcycle forum, and uh, yeah, it was just like it was like me and like four or five other girls, and like a couple hundred dudes on this forum. And I think part of my way of dealing with the fact that they weren't necessarily always the nicest because I was female was like, I would just gang up with some of them and pick on people there. And, um, I ended up becoming best friends with this girl when I was, I don't know, probably 18 or 19 and we moved in together and we were always together and it got even worse because she was a bully too. So, you know, like we would when we would go out, like, all we would do is sit around and just talk shit about everybody around us, and um, we, yeah, it was just, (laughs) it was so bad, and, you know, like, I also, um, I can be really manipulative, so, and I've learned how to use that for somewhat good, good reason, you know, to help help people make better decisions, you know, and now, like, cause I think anybody that's highly empathetic can be manipulative because when you can empathize with other people, you understand how to say things to them in a way that like makes the most impact and how to, you know, put ideas in their head that they maybe didn't consider before. And so you can either use that for good or evil. And I definitely used to use it for evil. Um, I was a terrible girlfriend. Like I cheated on almost every guy I ever dated. and just like, I think you know, everything that that I did that I look back and I'm like, oh God, um, it's all kind of like these symptoms of you know, insecurity and um, just like not, I don't know. And, and the other thing is I always used to equate um, like caring about people with weakness. And so, like, I never really wanted to care too much about anybody because I always interpreted that as being weak and, um, you know, if you care too much about somebody, you give them the power to hurt you. Um, I don't, I definitely don't look at that, look at life like that anymore, but,
0: where did you, where did you get that from though? Not to cut you off. Where did you get that, that feeling that caring about somebody is weak? I, I once felt like that before in the past, but like, where did that develop in you? Like that made you feel like that?
1: Um, I think that, uh, you know, I think if I go way, way back, um, the one person that I really cared about when I was young, like a child, was my older sister, so like my older brother was always pretty mean to me, um, but my sister was kind of like a second mom, so, you know, my parents were always gone, and so she babysat me most of the time, and, um, you know, I, I, I looked up to her a lot, and like I wanted to be just like her, and... Um, she like there's a, a huge backstory here but she ended up leaving when I was like 6 or 7 like she was a very uh, kind of rebellious teenager and, um, and she moved out and she more or less just kind of disappeared for a couple years and like went from basically being my second mom to like never coming around and you know like never really having a whole lot to do with us and so and then, like, no, I understand better now why. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happened uh, between her and my parents. and um, But I think, you know, from a pretty young age, I was like, the only person I really cared about, like, just kind of deserted me. Um, and then, you know, like, I, uh, the first couple boyfriends that I had, because I didn't have great models for relationships growing up, I had like some really dysfunctional relationships, and it was like, and I feel like anytime I opened myself up, I got hurt. So eventually, it was just like, all right, if I just put on the and like because I was I was really fat uh, when I was a kid, and I had really thick glasses, um, and I was really smart, and so it was like the trifecta of getting ticked on. And so I think I learned that if I, one, if I made fun of myself before other people did, then, you know, I could be self-depreciate, uh, self-deprecating and it would take the power away. And um, if I made fun of other people first um, or had really good comebacks when people made fun of me, then that would, um, you know, would, would make me feel better. So I just think I learned, I, put, you know, built a pretty thick shell around me and was like, I'm not going to
0: let anybody in. I'm not going to care because, like, it, it doesn't get me anywhere. It just ends up getting me hurt. Okay. And, like, how long in life, when did you move past that? Like, about how old were you when you moved past that and figured that you'll let somebody um, in?
1: I think it was kind of a process. So uh, I was, let's see here, when I was about twenty. Yeah, I was 24. Um, So I I grew up mostly in New Hampshire. um, And I was living in New Hampshire when I was 24. And I was living with my... The friend I was talking about that was also super toxic. And uh, I just kind of like... (laughs) This is going to sound like the dumbest thing. But I'm not even kidding when I say this. Um, So I was driving home from my sister's house, which is a couple of miles from, uh, from my house. And um, somehow, I don't listen to country ever, um, but somehow on the radio, there's this Tim McGraw song called, like, Live Like You Were Dying. And I think some of the lyrics in it go, uh, like, ah, he said something like, I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't and I became a friend a friend would like to have. And something about those lyrics just like, cut me to the core, because I realized like, I'm not the kind of girlfriend that I would want. I'm not the kind of friend that I would want. I'm like, like, nothing about me as a person is something that I would want in my life. And I, you know, I have this like, somewhat toxic friendship with this other person. Like, my best friend and I, we kind of had this like, mutually abusive, non-sexual relationship, you know, like, we would be assholes to each other, we'd be assholes to other people, we, but we lived together, and, like, we were really the only people that would put up with each other, so we were kind of stuck together, um, and just, like, everything, it, it was, like, all at once, it just hit me, like, I am a really shitty person, and I think that happened when I was about, like, 23 or 24, so, uh, it was 23, and then, um, I decided that I needed to just get out of New Hampshire that like I was living like I was living around a bunch of people that never aspired to be more than they were um, you know so I was sitting a couple of days later I'm sitting in this bar and it's like Sunday um, and I was drinking a lot of the time too so I used to go out like four or five nights a week Um, And, you know, I'm sitting in a bar with my friends, and it's, like, the same people that I've been drinking with for two or three years. We're telling the same stories. We're at the same bar. You know, and, like, there's a term in New England of, like, a townie. And it's basically, like, a townie is, like, someone that grows up, lives, gets married, and dies in the same town. Like, that's all you ever aspire to do is just, like, live where you grew up. And, you know, at that point, I was like, oh, shit, like, I got to get out of here. I, like, I can't I can't live here anymore because I'm becoming a townie and I'm going to end up marrying some idiot I went to high school with and have a couple ugly kids. <laughs> like, <laughs> just like, I'm just going to die in New Hampshire. Um, and so I literally, like, applied to a whole bunch of jobs in California Uh, with my company that I worked for, got one and moved all in the matter of, like, two weeks. And I had never even been to California, didn't really know much about California, so it was just, like, the company was going to pay for me to move, and it was like, all right, this is what I'm doing. Like, I'm going to get the hell out of here. And so I think, like, that whole kind of, that all happened over the course of a couple months, and I made this decision of, like, when I get to California, nobody knows me. I don't have any history here. Uh, you know, I'm away from this friend, I don't have a boyfriend, I am going to be a better person, and I ended up meeting my husband uh, just a couple months after I moved to California, and uh, I, I fell so in love with him so fast, that I think that also helped a lot too, because I was like, all I wanted to do from really early on in our relationship was be a better person for him and um as is, is silly as it sounds like he was the first guy i ever wanted to be less crazy for like uh, <laughs> like, uh his house was between my work and my house um that was like off a side street and there was this like we used to text all day every day so like from the day we went on our first date till now and we're actually like a couple days away from our 10th anniversary um oh
0: congratulations and
1: we would Thanks. Yeah, we would text, like, all day, every day. And there was one day that, like, I just didn't hear from him. It was probably, like, two or three months into our relationship. And not even, actually. I think it was, like, maybe six weeks into our relationship. I just didn't hear from him. And it was, like, drove me nuts all day. And I was, like, trying not to text him too much because I was, like, Doug, you know, don't be thirsty. Don't be crazy. Like, maybe he's busy. But then, you know, this little voice in the back of my head is, like, maybe there's a chick at his house. You know, maybe he's with his ex-girlfriend. Maybe, you know, and so... I got in my car, and I'm like, all right. I'm driving home, I'm going to drive by his house. Like, I'm going to drive down a street that if I turn two streets over, I can get, drive by his house. And I took a deep breath, and I was like, don't do this. Like, don't be crazy, don't be jealous, don't be, like, for once in your life, like, take a deep breath. And I didn't drive by his house. And when I got to my house, I was like, oh, shit, I am so in love with this dude that I am actively trying not to be crazy. Like, Like, it's like how I knew I was I was like, oh, no. Um, but, yeah, like, and same with him. Like, we both, he he also was not the best person when he was younger. And so I think from the moment we met each other, we both were just like, I'm going to be a better person for you. Like, I just want to be better for you. Um, and it's been this continual, like, 10-year process of us just holding each other accountable and talking and, you know, trying to recalibrate. Because we both have just, like, very shitty families and very shitty role models and hang out, hung out with shitty friends and um, yeah so there was like it's been kind of 10 years of trying to build a moral compass of like you know this, this is the kind of person I want to be
0: so how long after dating did y'all get married
1: um, so we got married a little over a year into dating um, so we, and actually it's funny, when we first started seeing each other, it was supposed to be a booty call. So it was like, <laughs> we met on, um, and not even kidding, we met on OkCupid, um, and on paper, if you had asked me to make a list of like all of the things I didn't want in someone that I was going to date, he would have hit like 90% of those things, and I think vice versa, you know, like I'm a very strong personality, I'm a really ambitious person, and he had always kind of dated, like, more, um, like, submissive females and, like, (laughs) just, like... And, like, we're intellectually... I would guess that our IQs are probably within a couple points of each other. Like, we're just very equally matched, and um, neither of us had really ever dated someone else that was like that. I think we both, prior to meeting each other, had preferred to be in relationships with people that were maybe... (laughs) a little bit lower than us, (laughs) you know? I mean, it's a shitty thing to say, but it's true. Um, And so, like, when we first met, it was like, all right, I think you're cute, you think I'm cute, we're not really that compatible, you know, so this could just be a booty call, but then our first date, uh, we went out to lunch together and went back to my house, and we ended up standing on my back porch for like four and a half hours just talking and like talking about our childhoods and our parents and our families and like, and that is not something that either of us had ever done before. Like I don't, I didn't open up very easily to people and he definitely didn't. Um, And it was just like, we had such similar childhoods, like very similar dads, very similar moms, like kind of very similar family dynamics. And it was just like, oh crap. But still, we were like, yeah, but like other than that, we are really not compatible. So I think for like a handful of weeks, we just kind of hooked up. And then uh, probably a month in, a little over a month in, I text him and I was like, mm, we should probably stop doing what we're doing because I'm definitely catching feelings and like I don't want to go crazy on you and I know you're not looking for anything serious. And so like we should just like agree to... Part ways amicably, and he was like, "No, I'm actually pretty into you too, so we should just date." Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's kind of how that happened, and we actually like we knew we were gonna get married, and the only reason we waited as long as we did is his sister was engaged and was like doing the whole long drawn out process of like engagement and like a wedding a year later and everything, and we didn't want to like jump in front of her and get married so we waited until after her wedding um which was like i think so we started dating in like august or september and then her wedding was like the next may and then we got married like that september i think um so it was almost exactly a year into like officially dating
0: okay okay so how how did y'all get introduced into psychedelics
1: uh, so it's kind of a, you know what's funny is like I'm trying to, so I'm trying to think. So when I was like 22, mm-hmm. um, I had tried mushrooms with my friend and um, it didn't go well. So in the, like we did all the wrong things. Like we, we had gone to um, a water park that day and so we were both sunburned and exhausted Um, and then we came home and in New Hampshire, almost nobody has air conditioning or at least at this point, nobody did. And so it was like, I'm not even kidding when I say it was probably 90 to 95 degrees in my house. It was so hot in my house and like she had like for as bad as my childhood was, hers was a thousand times worse and she Mm -hmm. had done even less work than I had on herself. And so, like, we were both, like, just really fucked up people and, like, split these mushrooms. (laughs) And, like, and then afterwards, of course, a couple years later, I read, like, oh, like, heat exacerbates the effects of mushrooms. And, like, and so the thing is, like, for the first part of that trip, I was actually having a fairly good trip. Like, I remember going in the bathroom and looking in the mirror and this is when I was probably, like, uh, maybe 40 pounds heavier than I am now. So I had lost a lot of weight, but I still, like, there's this whole body of this dismo- body dysmorphia thing where when you're really really fat and then you lose a lot of weight you still look fat when you look in the mirror like you it's a strange phenomenon um, but like I still didn't feel skinny and I still didn't feel attractive and I went in the bathroom and looked in the mirror and I was like oh my god I am so pretty and <laughs> so I called her and I called her and then I was like hey get in here and she comes she comes in the bathroom and I'm like look at the mirror I was like we are so pretty like can you believe how pretty we are and, like, and so it was like it was a fairly good trip from the beginning and then she started to kind of spiral and um so I think she was having like I don't know like suicidal thoughts or something like that and so because she was she thought I was and like it just turned into a really bad trip for the last couple hours and then Um, I've since learned to never do psychedelics, when I'm really tired because when you're really tired towards the end of your trip, you can get into these loops where your brain just kind of spins and I always liken it to like, if you've ever blown up a balloon and then let it go and it's just like all over the place, like your brain kind of does that if you're really tired and then you do psychedelics and it's just not, for me at least, um, so I did that, and then I was like, the next day, I was like, I am never doing that again. Like, ever, ever, ever doing that again. It was a terrible idea. It was a horrible time. The couple hours at the beginning that were good were not worth what happened afterwards. And so I just didn't touch them. And we actually, so fast forward, um, 2015, we had had, my husband and I had had three kids in four years. Um we had both been working crazy, like really hard in our careers. We hadn't taken a vacation and I don't even know how long. Um, and we were at like complete burnout mode. Um, and we were kind of talking about like, should we stay together? Should we split up? Like we, we never fought, but we were just both so unhappy that we were like, something's got to give. And if we're going to get divorced, we should get divorced like now before our kids are old enough to even remember us being together because... We're unhappy, and, like, we don't want our kids to grow up in an unhappy house because we had grown up in an unhappy house. So even though we weren't fighting, we were like, should we stay together? And I think it turns out that, like, we just hadn't taken enough time for ourselves because once you have kids, it's really easy to lose yourself into being a parent and, like, completely forget who you were before you had kids or that you had an identity that wasn't mom and dad. And um, so we had... Uh, So it's kind of a a detailed story, but so uh, we were laying in bed one night, and there was this documentary about EDC, the music festival, on Netflix, and we watched it, and I was like, oh my god, we need to go there, (laughs) like, we need to find a babysitter for the kids. We take a weekend for ourselves, and we need to go to a music festival. And neither of us had ever been to a music festival. We didn't really listen to that much electronic music, but the documentary just made it seem like this is a place you can go and be as weird as you want to be, and everybody will love and accept you for exactly who you are, or who, whoever you want to pretend to be. And so um, we did. We just went, and like I looked online, and it was like two weeks later, and so we bought tickets on Craigslist, and literally just like last minute went to this music festival. And um, it was insane. It was, like, life-changing because it truly was. And, you know, like, the thing, the unfortunate thing is that music festivals have become so mainstream now that they're kind of losing some of this. But it truly was this place where people just came with open minds and open hearts, and they wanted to get to know you. And, like, um, you know, at this point, like, neither of us had ever done MVMa. We had never done, you know, like I had only done The Mushroom once, he would never done psychedelics, we just drank, we smoked a ton of weed. Um, And the thing that I think makes music festivals really special is that the drugs that most people are on are drugs that, like, make you more in touch with people. Like, when you drink, you just become really selfish. And you, be, you know, like, because your judgment's impacted and, like, your perception's impacted, it kind of, like, disconnects you from the situation you're in. Whereas when you're doing things like MDMA, which like, you know, softens your amygdala and increases your serotonin and dopamine and neuropernephrine, like you're, you're becoming more in touch with everybody around you and you want to connect with the people around you. And so like being in a place that was that tolerant and loving and accepting was just amazing. And so for like a year, we go to music festivals and all we do is like we smoke weed and, like, we watch all these people around us on drugs, right? <laughs> and at the same time, I'm, like, starting to read biographies of people, you know, like Steve Jobs and, like, um, I think he ended up reading um, the biography of uh, Albert Hoffman, who was the scientist that actually, like, he didn't discover LSD, but he was the first person to really, like, synthesize it. <laughs> um, and, like started to listen to a ton of podcasts and one of the podcasts I was listening to was talking about psychedelics and um, so I think the first thing we tried was MDMA because we both had like all this trauma in our past and like we really needed to connect as a couple and we felt like that was going to be something that was going to make it a lot easier um, and you know we didn't ever like still I can count like two or three times I think that we've ever done like MDMA and actually stayed at a music festival like for the most part anytime we've ever done it and we actually don't really do it anymore um, but anytime we've ever done it we've ended up just going away from the music and sitting down and just talking and having these like very deep heart to heart Um, and a lot of the time that we've done MDMA we've done it at home together and it's always been in a kind of very intentional way of like let's sit down and work through some shit you know Um, more than like let's, let's, let's roll our faces off and party um, so, so, so it started there, and then it was like, okay, like we should try some psychedelics. Um, but because of my bad experience with mushrooms, I didn't want to do those. And at the time, because I had never done psychedelics, I thought acid was the most ridiculous thing that anybody could do. Like I had grown up, and, and I think this is really important for people to understand: is that like if you were born in the '80s to like mid '90s. You grew up in the D.A.R.E. generation. You grew up in the war on drugs. You grew up in this very intentional kind of brainwashing against drugs and very much against psychedelics. And so, like, I was one of the people that, like, (laughs) basically a cop came into my classroom when I was in, like, second grade on. And, like, a couple times a year they would bring this fucking... (laughs) <laughs> McGruff's the crime dog. Oh, yeah, I he was remember that. Fucking, <laughs> yeah, this dude in the dog costume, and he would be your buddy where this cop was standing next to him and was like, if you smoke the marijuana, you will end up sucking dick for crack and you will die in a gutter. That is the exact <laughs> progression. Like, this is a progression of drug use, and you will die if you smoke the pot. And, like, that was the generation I grew up in, so I was terrified of drugs. You know, and I really, like, I smoked a little bit of weed when I was a teenager with my sister. But, like, I never really smoked weed that much until I was older. And, like, I was just terrified of drugs. So I believed that acid was the drug that would make you go crazy, jump out a window, and die. Right? Mm. And, like, most people have heard that. And a lot of that stuff comes from the government. And it comes from the experiments that the CIA was doing you know, in the late 40s through the 70s, you know, both under MKUltra and, you know, the programs before that. And did people jump out windows and die? Maybe. But I don't know if you've gotten a chance to watch the documentary Wormwood. Wormwood? (laughs) Yeah, so there's this documentary on Netflix called Wormwood, and it's about that story and about why people believe that acid will make you jump out of a window and die. And it turns out that what happened is um, I think this is in the early 50s, um, the CIA was experimenting with LSD and they would dose people unknowingly and they would dose them like with a hundred hits. So Ooh. we're not talking about like a couple, we're talking about massive doses of LSD and they thought it would be like either a truth serum or a mind control drug. And what ended up happening is they gave it to this scientist that worked at Fort Dietrich, which is where they were doing a lot of experiments with, like, chemical weapons, and he ended up having this, like, crisis of conscience where he was like, holy shit, we are doing what chemical weapons is wrong, and we're using chemical weapons in Korea, and we're lying about it, and he just had this, like, complete existential crisis. And so what ended up happening is they actually ended up throwing him out a window in New York and oh, then basically man. making it look like he committed suicide. Um, and so like that's kind of where that comes from. And it took this, this poor family, it took them like 15 years to have all of the truth about what actually happened to come out. So like in the 70s, they got some of it out. But, like, it took them years and years and years to get the government to admit that, like, he didn't go on an acid trip and jump out a window. Like, they murdered him because doing acid made him have a crisis of conscience about all of the chemical weapons he had been working on at Fort Dietrich. Um, and so, <laughs> so, I guess, I didn't mean for the impromptu kind of history lesson on that, but that's the kind of shit that I thought about acid, right? So, when we went to do Second like, for the first time, we actually did um, mescaline. And mescaline is like, there's a lot of different ways you can get it. I guess you can get it as like powder and capsules, but the, the closest to legal way to do mescaline is, it's actually derived from San Pedro cactus. And San Pedro cactus is totally legal to buy. Like you can buy it on the internet, like um, people have it just growing in their yards. Um, and so we bought San Pedro cactus and full disclosure, my understanding is that the process of actually putting it in your blender and then boiling it down on the stove and turning it into mescaline is, is probably illegal in most states. But, uh, yeah, so you basically just you get this cactus on the internet, you stick it in a blender, turn it into liquid, boil it down as much as you can on the stove because that shit tastes horrible. Um, so you kind of want it to be the smallest quantity possible, and then you drink it. And uh, much like you know most plant medicines, you end up throwing a lot of it up like you purge because it upsets your stomach. Um, and then after you purge, you have a pretty glorious trip. So we got this hotel in uh, San Francisco. And this hotel was insane. We didn't even mean to book this hotel. It was just like the cheapest one we could find. It wasn't, you know, one star. And uh, this hotel, I don't recall the name. I think it's called like the International or something like that. The entire hotel is pineapples and mirrors. And it was like... We could not have picked a more trippy place to do our first psychedelic trip because like literally the whole bathroom is mirrors. The walls are mirrors, the ceilings are mirror. there's a huge mirror on the wall and like anything that's not a mirror is covered in pineapples. And like Mescaline is this very like, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's like halfway between mushrooms and ayahuasca. Like it's like a very immersive trip. And so we put on the 50 greatest classical music songs of all time. So like these amazing like orchestral classical music pure like pieces. And you know like when the Nutcracker Suite came on like Christmas exploded in my room. And in the hotel room. And then like when the William Tell Overture came on like there were all these horses stampeding across the room. It was just really cool. It was a great experience. and so after that, we were like, that was insane. Um, <laughs> and then a couple weeks later, we were at a music festival and we met these other people. Um, and so I think the big, like, the, big, the one thing is that, like, you want when you want to experiment with drugs, you're like, how do I do it safely, right? Because I have three kids. I'm not trying to end up dead or, like, on the cover of a newspaper. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we went and we bought a full testing kit from DanceSafe so I want to add this that like anything we've ever done we've tested and um, actually that's a lie because the first time we tried to do MDMA we did not test it and even though we got it from somebody that we trusted it ended up being god fucking knows what I don't know if it was meth or bat (laughs) salt I have no idea but we were fucked up like it it luckily neither of us had such a bad reaction because we only did a little bit of it and neither of us had such a bad reaction that we had to like get medical attention but we felt like absolute shit the next day and
0: how was the trip not the to cut friend... you off
1: I'm sorry? how was that was trip bad.
0: not to cut you off that, that trip you said you wasn't sure what it was even though you got it from somebody that you trusted like how was that trip that yeah, day bad... it
1: was it was horrible so um we thought we were getting Molly mm-hmm um, I'm pretty sure after doing a decent amount of research, what we got was either stash, which is, like, basically, I, I mean, I, my, I'm not a chemist, but my understanding is it's, like, a synthetic version of molly that's, like, very dirty, and it's typically cut with a lot of, a lot of methamphetamine. and so, uh, pretty sure that's what we got, because I just got, like, kind of a rush of energy, but then crashed, and my husband and I had given him more than I had taken, because, um he's bigger than me uh and he same thing kind of was wired all night i crashed he had to basically carry me back to our tent so that i could sleep um he on the other hand because i'd given him more was like wired all night long he got horrible lock jaw um like horrible like spins and like it was just awful and so when i woke up the next morning he was staring at me like a crazy person and I was like, what's up, dude? And he's like, I didn't sleep all night. I watched you sleep though. And I held your hand for a little while, but I didn't want to wake you up. So I stopped and I was like, whoa, you sound like a tweaker right now. <laughs> you <laughs> sound absolutely insane. You're talking a hundred miles an hour. And yeah, so, you know, later that day, my friend texted me and he was like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, sorry for what? And he was like, I had no idea how dirty that shit was. And I was like, dude, you told us you got it from a friend that you trusted. And this is like a guy I worked with and at the time I worked for like <laughs> I worked for like a venture capital bank. So like, oh, I wasn't like some some dude I worked with at McDonalds. And it was <laughs> you know like I trusted him he said he knew the person he was getting it from, but he was kind of fucked up when we met up with him. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, dude, I got some. I was like, cool, he met up with his friend that he trusts and he's gotten it from before. It's all good. And so when he was like, I'm so sorry, I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, I didn't know how dirty that shit was. I was like, oh, like I had no frame of reference. Right? So I was like, okay, like, why would your friend give us Dirty Molly? And he was like, oh, I didn't get it from my friend. I bought it from some dude I met at the beer garden at the festival. Because This is at Coachella. Oh, and man. Was like, I was like, bro, you didn't tell me that. And you put my life at risk and you put my husband's life at risk. And that's really fucked up because my husband doesn't even really know you. Like, I know you. And we, the student and I had been really good friends. He was like one of my best friends at work. And like, it, just, it actually kind of ruined our relationship because I was so salty about him, like putting me at risk like that. Because so the thing is, is that like, I knew about Dance Safe, I knew about Bunk Police. I knew that like in any festival you could go to, there's ways of finding testing kits and testing your shit before you do it. And stupidly, I just trusted this guy. so. After that, I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna buy a testing kit. They're like sixty to 120 bucks, depending on how robust of a testing kit you need, and like how much shit you want to be able to test with them. They last for like six months to a year, depending. And like, why would you risk your life? You know what I mean? Like for mm-hmm. the cost of like. A decent amount of drugs, you can buy a testing kit, and so I bought a testing kit. And so we've always tested everything that we've done, other than like the plant medicine, which really like comes from a cactus. You know, you don't really need to test it because it's like it's pretty hard to adulterate a cactus. So, <laughs> <laughs> um But yeah, so like anything we've ever done. Like after that, we you know I I went through a different friend that I trusted, and she got us the MDMA that we did for the first time. It was real and tested it, and it, you know, like, it came up really pure, so it was awesome. And so everything else we've ever done, we tested. So, uh, the first time we did acid, we were at um, another festival, and we ran into these people, like, we had actually just done Molly, and um, this was the first time I was gonna try to do Molly and actually stay at the festival, because almost always, like, Molly is such a sensory overload for me that I have to, like, leave, and, like, we end up, like, let's just leave the festival and go have a heart-to-heart conversation and cuddle naked. Like, that's pretty much, like, like my MO anytime I try to roll. <laughs> so um, we're like, all right, this time we're staying at the festival. Like, we're going to try to do it and actually see music. And so I start, like, peaking, right? Like, I get this huge rush of serotonin, and i like, I need to sit down, which is pretty difficult on Molly. And so I go sit down next to this girl, and she's, like, Peaking and coming up pretty hard on acid. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, we can be peeking buddies and, like, touch each other's hair, right? <laughs> <I'm laughs> Rolling at this point. Like, let's be friends and, like, brush each other's hair, right? And so, <laughs> so he's peeking on acid. And so, we ended up spending, like, the whole night with these people and like, hanging out. And, like, we tried to go see, um, I don't know if you've ever heard a giant word, but they're this, like, really crazy South African like music group and there's like this little tiny blonde chick and then this like super tatted up white guy and then their DJ is like the biggest black dude I've ever seen and they make really creepy music like, well, I'm <laughs> like check some them of the music is just Oh God! You really should. They're like really intense and like elect. Like some of their stuff is like electronic, and some of the stuff like she raps, and some of the stuff the white dude raps, and the DJ plays like the sickest beats. And like they're a really cool group, except that some of their music is really creepy. Um, and so, oh no, I'm sorry. That was actually the next night. So <laughs> we hang out with these people. Do we hang out with these people all day and like have a great time with them? And we go back to our hotel room and um, we had told them we were like, Yeah, you know, like we've we've been wanting to try acid but like we're really scared and <laughs> and like really nervous and they were like, Oh, well we have more so like we've been wanting to do Molly but it's really hard to find clean Molly where we're from and we were like, Well, how about a trade fees? And like we have really good Molly that we've tested and it's clean And like we can test the acid and like tell you for sure, I mean, you're doing it, so obviously it's not gonna kill us, but you know, just to be safe. And so like we tested the stuff that we had in front of them and then tested their stuff, it was pure. so like we were like, hey, let's trade. We'll give you some Molly and give us some acid. Um, (laughs) So we traded. And so the next night we do acid and we decided to go see Diet Word. Not the best idea because that shit's creepy as hell. Um, And acid, as much as MDMA is kind of sensory overload, it's sensory overload, but like, the way MDMA works, right, is that it softens your amygdala, which effectively kills your fight or flight response. So it's very, like, you're not afraid of anything on MDMA, which is what makes it such a powerful drug, because, like, if you're talking about, like, in a therapeutic setting, like, it was originally used in the 80s in family therapy and, like, PTSD therapy, because if you, aren't afraid of anything you can talk openly and honestly about your feelings and you don't feel any shame and that's what makes it so powerful and it's one of the things I love about MDMA is that I've used it to have basically like at-home therapy sessions with my husband where we can talk about everything you know anything that's been bothering us anything that like we've been afraid to tell each other anything that like You know, it's like a a horrible memory from our past that we felt shame over that we really wanted to share with each other, but weren't sure how. And so we've been able to have the most insane, like cathartic therapeutic sessions on MDMA, right? Acid on the other hand, no effect on your amygdala, right? Like like it's just as much of a sensory overload. And the interesting thing about acid is that like, so MDMA works by like, stimulating the production of a lot of chemicals so there's like it I think it, it stimulates serotonin I think it actually um, represses dopamine and I think it stimulates norepinephrine don't quote me on that it's been a, a year or two since I've read the science on it but like it they, so basically with MDMA you can feel this chemical rush and then two days later you feel the lack of those chemicals so like you have no serotonin and you cry about everything and you become very overly emotional and like this like people kind of flippantly call it like suicide tuesday or suicide monday right because like you do mdma and then like two days later you basically want to kill yourself because oh, man. you just have no serotonin left and it takes like a week or two or three depending on how much you did to like rebuild your your stores with those chemicals and I actually almost never do Molly anymore. So I did it like every six to eight weeks for probably a hot like six months to a year. And then basically just stopped. Because at that point I had worked through all of my shit. I had gotten everything out that I wanted to get out. And quite frankly, the feeling two days later was no longer worth the fun of doing it. Um, and I peak really hard. Like, I peak very hard on Molly, and I don't really like it. And so, like, the come down, like, so Molly is like, you know, the first hour to two hours is like this crazy peak, and like this whole, like, tsunami of chemicals. And then, like, there's the come down, which is like, you know, four to six to eight hours, depending on how long it lasts. And, like, that part feels really good. Um, but I don't know. It's just like, the other thing is that one of the best, um, expressions I've ever heard about doing drugs is when you get the message hang up the phone Mm. so basically like once once you've used any drug enough to really get the benefit of it stop doing it right and like (laughs) if you can't you probably have a problem um and so that's kind of where I got to with MDMA so we do this acid and it's like crazy sensory overload but like your amygdala is still fully functioning. So it's definitely possible to get scared or nervous or like skittish on acid. And we're at Diantward and it's just like really creepy music. And we're like, okay, this is not a good place to be on our first acid trip, let's go. And so we leave that and we ended up going to try to see like Bass Nectar, which is this like super like deep bass music DJ. But like one of the things he's known for it's having fans that are very, like, kind of... Mm, mm. <laughs> the, like, the term for them is Wooks, uh, which is, a, a, like, a spin-off of, like, a Wookiee, like, Chewbacca from Star Wars. Oh, okay. So, like, he's got all <laughs> <of> the <this> fans... <laughs> I'm trying to put this nicely. Um, he's got all the fans that are, like, the white people with dreads that smell terrible. Um, they smell like a, a combination of, like, body odor and patchouli. Um... And so one of the things that I find really interesting about acid is that the way acid works is that when you do, so like my first degree in college was for psychology, right? And so like, I really get into like the neuroscience behind a lot of um, drugs because that's what's really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And so like, if you look at the brain scan of somebody on acid, like you have all these different regions of your brain that are responsible for things, right? So you have like your language center and you have like your... You know, your emotion center and your, like, your visual cortex and, like, your amygdala, which is, like, what produces fight or flight. Um, and then you're, like, um, yeah, so there's all these different things, right? Um, your pineal gland, which is, like, uh, what people typically refer to as your third eye, and it's kind of, like, principally responsible for, like, intuition, mm-hmm. um, right, and things like that. And so when you look at the brain scan of somebody on acid, all these regions of your brain that typically like they typically function independently and in the cases of traumatic brain injury like your brain can sometimes make these crazy like bridges over the other areas of your brain and use those for whatever function was injured in the traumatic brain injury but for the most part those regions of the brain don't typically talk to each other unless you're on acid and then all of a sudden and they're not really sure why this happens the regions of your brain that don't typically talk to each other start talking to each other so like there's all this weird stuff and I I didn't know this until I did a lot more research after I had done acid a couple times because I was like I feel like being on acid makes me smarter and I feel like when I do LSD instead of processing things you know in um, series you know Mm -hmm. like one thing after another after another I process them in parallel. Like, it's almost like my brain can, like, execute 10 different commands at the same time. And, like, also, like, I experience music in a much more robust way, you know? Like, I don't just hear it. I, like, feel it and taste it and see it and, like, it's very hard to explain how it feels, but, like, understanding the brain science, it's, like, okay. It's because for every one thing that would have been processed in one region of my brain, it's now being processed in, like, the six regions of my brain. Um, and so, yeah, so, like, uh, one of the things that happens is that your senses are heightened when you're on acid. So, like, your sense of smell, your sense of taste, your sense of hearing, like, it's all, like, x ten. And so, standing in this crowd full of people with questionable hygiene, uh, the smell was like unbearable. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh. And so we had to leave there. And so we end up like we end up going back to our hotel room, and um, our friends who had done uh, our molly that night because we had traded. Um, We told them because, like, a lot of times on Molly, like, it's like a a super high, high, but then you're kind of wired all night. You can't sleep. But that's only on, like, some types of Molly. And it's usually on Molly that's been cut with stimulants, like, you know, methamphetamine or anything else. Ours is really pure. And we told them, we're like, hey, we've never had a problem sleeping at the end of this stuff. So, like, that's a good thing. And they were like, oh, really? We can never sleep after we roll. And I was like, yeah, well, maybe your stuff's not that clean. And so we go back to our hotel room with these people and they straight up just pass out in our bed. Like,
0: (laughs) completely
1: sound asleep. Yeah, in our bed in our hotel room. So we're like, ah, shit, and we're wired because we're on acid, and the thing with acid is that you don't sleep for hours and hours after you do it. And so, um, and it's not because you're like, you're actually not really wired, it's just your brain is very active, and you feel really good, so you're like, I can't sleep. and so we couldn't sleep, so we were like, oh, uh, we should definitely turn the lights off for them so that they can sleep. So we were like, and, and like, we both were like, we want to get really comfy. And so we, we put on cat onesies, like we had these onesies that were cats, um, <laughs> and so we both put on our, you know, this is where shit gets weird, okay, like, time out, full disclosure, shit starts getting weird, like, right now. Um, and so... We decided to put our cat onesies on. And so the other interesting thing about the brain scans of people that are on LSD is that they actually look more like the brain scan of a child that's between, like, 6 and 12 years old. And so, and that's in terms of, like, neuroplasticity. So, like, your brain's ability to, like, learn and process and things like that. Because you're actually a hell of a lot smarter when you're, like, under 15 than you are when you're over 25 and so it's one of the reasons that kids are much more capable of learning and like you have like 10 times the neural pathways as a small child that you do as an adult because basically like your brain starts to decide well hey like we don't use this part of our brain anymore so if we like shut it off we could devote more resources to the parts of our brain that we do use. and so, what happens when you do acid is that your brain kind of starts using a lot of those areas that have been shut down. And it's actually like they've shown that on like smaller doses of acid. Like that's why like the whole microdosing thing is very popular. Is because like when you microdose and you just kind of light those areas up, it actually makes learning a lot easier. It makes systemic thinking a lot easier, which makes things like you know software programming things like that easier. Um, and so one of the things that it's always done for me is that it makes me much more playful so i become like a big kid and so we put our cat onesies on and we're like well we should turn the lights off for them but like we're cats right now so it's cool because <laughs> we can see in the dark <laughs> right Sounds so we're like we're totally gonna turn the lights off because we can see in the dark because we put our cat onesies on so we'll be fine right? and so like, we turn the lights off and it is pitch black in our hotel room and for the next probably like hour we proceed to, like, pretend to be cats. And <laughs> it's not, like, <I'm>, like <laughs> I know. It's just the thing, is that People think that acid is, like, super disorienting. And I think if you take a ton of it, and I've never really taken, like, a lot. I think the most I've ever taken is, like, two and a half pitch, maybe three. Um... And that was, like, over the course of some time. And that was a really intense trip that I had, like, in bed at my house. So, like, so, yeah, if you take, like, ten hits of acid, it's probably somewhat disorienting. And you can go, like, really deep into a trip. But, like, when you're on, like, one or two hits of acid, it's not super disorienting. Um, you just, like, you <laughs> you can pretend. Like, cause I think one of the really shitty things that happens when you become an adult is you lose the ability to pretend. Um, and it's one of the great things about having kids, but you don't really do it with your kids. You kind of like fake it. Um, but when you do acts like you can get really into it, right? So we were cats. Like as soon as we we actually thought we were cats, it was like we're going to pretend to be cats, and we actually did. And so we like crawled around the room in the dark and like tried to like pounce on each other and like <laughs> and I was, like it was all like we made a, like we took these two chairs that were in our hotel room and like pushed them together, and they made this like. Almost like bathtub size, like semi, like circle, because of the size these chairs were, and that was our cat boat. So then we were like cats in a boat, and like it, Ooh. it was like it was very fun. Um, and then we were actually staying in the old part of Vegas, like Fremont Street, um, and so there's a lot of like street performers in that part of Vegas, and so. When we got bored of crawling around in the dark, we were like, all right, we're giggling too much. Like, we're laughing our asses off, so we should probably just leave the hotel room because these people are sleeping and we don't want to wake them up. And so we just kind of wander out to Fremont Street in our cat onesies. And, you know, we're, like, out, like, talking to street performers and people are looking at us like we're insane because we're dressed like cats. And, <laughs> <laughs> And so, we just spent hours, like, wandering around having fun, and then eventually we go back to our room and, like, pass out on the floor because, like, they're sleeping in our bed, right? So, that was, like, it was a really great experience, and, like, I've actually never had what I think most people would call, like, a bad trip, Um, you know, and I really actually don't really like that term because there are no, if you, depending on how you look at life, like, there are no bad trips. There are difficult trips, and there are trips that, especially if you have trauma in your past and you know some shit to work through, there are trips that you go into where your brain and spirit may decide that you need to see some shit that you might not want to see, and you might not be ready to deal with.
0: Headed to the top, but I lost a few homies. homies, homies. Some to a bullet, and some to being phony. phony. Niggas used to hate now them same niggas. Joe me. Joe me. Joe me. Shorty says she love me, baby girl. You don't know me. Stuck to the plan. Now I'm getting bass. Band at the band at the band. Stuck to the plan. Now I'm getting bass. Bands at the band at the band. Stuck to the plan. Now I'm getting bass. Band at the band at the band. Stuck to the plan. Now I'm getting bass. Band Band at the band at the band. Like my drink shaking, I stir. Had to go get it, ain't waiting my turn. When these hay boys out here gon' learn. Gotta get up off your ass, boy, go earn. Gotta go get it. Ain't nobody gon' give it to you. I know life get hard, gotta live through it. Whatever you going through, you gon' get through it. Just get you a plan and you stick to it. Show them the way, but they chose to do it different. They ain't mad at me, man, they mad at all they livin' They don't hate me, man, they hate their position When the table turn, watch how niggas start switchin' Niggas used to hate, now they joke me Bitches say they love me, they don't know me a pussy bitch just blow me. Crucible and Marion, I ain't never seen Kobe. Boy, ball like I got five rings. I need five more. In five years, man, I wanna have five stores. Need me a building with like five floors. On a private island with like five whores. Headed to the top. And I lost a few homies. Son to a bullet Son to phone phony. Niggas used to hate, man. I'm saying niggas, Joe me. Joe me. Shorty says he love me, baby girl. You don't know me. Stuck to the plan. now I'm getting best. Band at the band at the band, stuck to the plan. now I'm getting best. Band at the band at the band, stuck to the plan. now I'm getting best. Band at the band at the band, stuck to the plan. now I'm getting best. Band at the band at the band, band at the band, band at the band. Ban at the bank, bag at the bag at the band, bag at the band, bag at the band, band at the band, band at the bag at the band, band at the band, lost a few home band at the band, 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 band